Hey, pals. In 2017, you thought you knew the story. But then you listen to NPR and something happened. You learned something new. There will be plenty more to learn and unpack in the new year. We can count on that. But we can't give you all that new info without your help. So let's make a deal. We keep giving you new stuff to stick in your noggin and you donate to your local member station. Deal? Deal. Visit donate.npr.org slash listen to give and then share why you gave with the hashtag WhyPublicRadio. That's W-H-Y Public Radio. So let's all keep learning together, shall we? Recently, the New York Times published an op-ed titled, I Survived Domestic Violence, Now I'm Drawn to True Crime Podcasts. The op-ed is about the connection between um, true crime narratives and domestic violence survivors. That's writer Jess Skolnick. A lot of us are fans of true crime narratives, and that seems counterintuitive for some people. Um, But many of us have found it a healing and productive fandom to be part of. Skolnick is a survivor of domestic abuse and sexual assault. For anyone without a history of trauma, it can be hard to understand the allure of media that portrays real-life violence. But as Skolnick explains, the true crime genre can be kind of like a tonic. Coming through all of that violence, you don't necessarily think that, that you'd be drawn to these incredibly dark stories. But I found in true crime stories that... There was just an admission that life can be this cruel and violent Mm -hmm. and that people who love you can do terrible things to you and people who love you can also be there for you. I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we unpack the big ideas from your favorite podcasts and maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. This week, we're going to be talking about some violent crime, so sensitive listeners might want to do some fast-forwarding. Now, since the launch of Serial in 2014, the true crime podcast genre has become one of the most popular. We are lousy with true crime options, from the scholarly to the salacious. And Skolnick has sampled pretty much the entire catalog. Since the true crime podcast explosion has sort of happened, um, I have found myself listening to almost all of them and processing what draws me to some of them and what causes me to turn away from others. The shows that make it onto Skolnick's playlist strike a more understanding tone. The ones that I end up sticking with are the ones that are extremely empathetic, um, where there is a lot of seeking to understand and to, uh, to make sense of human and intimate violence as opposed to looking at things from like a clinical um, and like these are the monsters in our brains sort of you know mm-hmm. perspective because all of us contain the capacity to be either incredibly kind or incredibly cruel or you know everything on the spectrum in between one of Skolnick's top picks is my favorite murder 1989 20 year old woman named Terry Knorr comes to the Utah police and she has a story for them she tells them about how eight years before around her mother and two brothers had killed both of her teenage sisters, Terry's teenage sisters and left their bodies in the mountains near Lake Tahoe. What the 
Yeah. My Favorite Murder is hosted by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. And it's not the kind of dun-dun-dun-dun, suspenseful, investigation discovery channel kind of stuff. I wrote about that in the op-ed about their fandom and how these two women who are a comedian and a TV writer um, have sort of really connected with their audience um, and brought out a lot of kindness and compassion in their fandom, which is not what you expect from you know, a murder comedy podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you don't even expect there to be a murder slash comedy podcast, right. but there is. <laughs> there is. We're going to hear more from Jess Skolnick about the cathartic value of true crime shows and how listening to dark and violent podcasts can be a form of therapy. I've talked about this with my therapist, actually. And she's like, you know that you're doing exposure therapy, right? But first, we're going to shift gears ever so slightly to talk about another form of therapy, Drugs. Since the dawn of time, drugs have profoundly influenced human existence. They've helped us beat cancer and become the gender we were born to be. They've made us more open to art and they've stirred our creative juices. They've lessened the trauma of war, but they've also promoted violence. The soldiers absolutely loved taking pervertine when they invaded Poland. Um, they write about um, the positive effects that, that they experienced. It, cured them from depression and it cured them from any uh, any doubts that they might have or invading another country. It kept them awake. It kept them uh, happy. Oler says that drugs weren't just useful for soldiers. They were actually critical for strategy. With the help of math, the German army moved really quickly. That's the host of On Drugs, Jeff Turner, with guest Norman Oler. On the show, Turner takes a look at the different ways drugs have factored into our day-to-day, from getting us high to saving our lives. Jeff Turner, welcome to The Big Listen. Hi, Lauren. Are you sober right now? Uh, Well, (laughs) I guess that depends on the definition. Um, That's true. I've been been using caffeine this morning, as I always do. Right, right. So I, I guess I'm not. It's not really a fair question. I just, you know, I would never normally ask a guest that, but I figured given the topic of your show, it was like, Maybe appropriate. Uh, hey, I've I've been plumbing that question with a lot of people over the last few months, so right, I'm, I'm mostly ready to go there. Right. Um, I wonder what your interest was in unpacking our um, often complicated relationship with drugs. I guess for me, it was the, the idea first came from the feeling that I've had for a while that when at least in the media, when we talk about drugs, it, it seems that we do it at some kind of arm's length. Mm-hmm. We're, we're always talking about drugs as something that somebody else does, or it's an experiential thing. Here is someone in the depths of addicted despair. Or I never got the feeling of the relationship to drugs as it's been in my life and in the lives of many of the people I know, where we're all using drugs to some degree, whether it's caffeine or it's alcohol or it's a prescription medication to, or it's Viagra. <laughs> drugs are part of our lives. The most obvious one is the way we use the term drugs and alcohol, which right. I, found, I find really curious. <laughs> okay, l- let's start with what are we getting wrong in our thinking about how and why people use drugs recreationally? Number one, what are we getting wrong is our uh, image of the typical drug user is wrong. We oftentimes start with 
for example, people describe me as an addiction expert. You know, I, I know something about addiction, but that would be a very limited sort of thing of what I do. Addiction is a small part of drug use, but we act as if it's the largest part. Small number of people who use these drugs become addicted. The vast majority of people who use these drugs uh, are not addicted. They go on, they're responsible people, they live their life, and they use their drugs. And so that's the major thing. We have to rethink what we think of a typical drug user. And we have to restrain ourselves from going to the frame of addiction. And we have to think about uh, drug use, recreational drug use, just like we think of um, other psychoactive drugs that are legal, like alcohol. How do we think of alcohol? We think of alcohol in, in terms of well, why do people do alcohol? Well, it's used as a social lubricant. It's used to make... Um, people and things more interesting sometimes uh heroin uh cocaine all of these drugs can be used and are used in similar fashion what is amazing to me is all of the ways in which people have found to enhance experiences using a variety of substances right like people are really creative and i think <laughs> there is a real basic human desire i feel like to alter your experience in some way and that we're constantly out there trying to find ways of doing that yeah and that, that's what i find fascinating about uh, especially psychedelics and 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 hallucinogens is they kind of sit in a different category than than say alcohol or or the opiates, which seem to me more about suppressing bad feelings mm -hmm. than creating good feelings in a way. Um, the psychedelics and the hallucinogens, there is this kind of exploratory aspect mm -hmm. to it, and, and it, because of the little tweak that it does, well, it's not a little tweak, a pretty big tweak that it does to your brain and forces just a different perspective on the world. Right. From your reporting, what have you gleaned about how we have a category of illicit drugs and those are demonized to a degree? And I, I wonder why we're sort of prudish around drugs. Well, I have a theory about this. And I'm just a podcast producer, so <laughs> don't don't anybody take this to to the bank. Um, but I feel as though there's going to be some kind of we're we're going to be forced into a reckoning because of the the present opioid mm -hmm. epidemic that we're dealing with right now. This is a complicated story. It's not as I don't think it's as simple as oh my doctor prescribed me drugs and then I got I got addicted, but I think you see the rates of addiction and overdose in places like Ohio and West Virginia, and you have to start asking your question, what, what is going on there? When people are being prescribed these drugs at similar rates in different places, and in certain places, they're getting addicted. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that there's another dimension to that then, that people are addressing something other than acute pain. Mm -hmm. There's something else going on in their lives. Uh, I th it seems to me there's a lot more sympathy right now with the people who are... The, the media coverage, you compare it to how, say, the crack story was covered in the 80s to now. It feels a lot more sympathetic to me that people are maybe, a, maybe more ready to look at this as a medical issue well, as opposed I, to a moral issue. Well, I would also argue that it's because of the color of the skin of the people who are who are 
uh, often um, in trouble with this, right? Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. It's a it's a very different story when mm-hmm. it happens in uh, in Appalachia than mm-hmm. if it happens in the the south side of Chicago. Right, right. In the work that you've done, can you look into your crystal ball and see where we might? land with this epidemic and then the longer impact of of this? Well, the next episode uh, of of the podcast is set in my hometown of Vancouver, where mm-hmm. I produced the show, which has a long and and very rich relationship with opioids. It's it's always been kind of the drug capital of the country. Beautiful Vancouver, the blackest black in the evil limbo of Canada's illicit narcotics trade. Vancouver, where recently three addicts committed involuntary suicide by accidentally taking overdoses of heroin. A city where in certain drug stores you can buy a prepackaged injection kit to give yourself a fix. That subtle take on the situation is from the CBC circa 1959. Now the thinking around addiction has come a long way since then. To the extent that there's now a pilot program that provides pharmaceutical-grade heroin to users in a clinical setting. The Crosstown Clinic is just up the lane from the Market Clinic where I met Raven and Michael. So my name's Lori. Um, I guess I would call myself a recovering addict. What are you using in the program uh, here? Right now I'm using... um, I don't know the proper name of it, but I'm using this, the heroin, and I use that twice a day. Some people come three times a day. I come twice a day because I live out of town. So that's a bit of an effort. It's an effort. It's like having a job with that, but no holidays, no days off, no breaks. You have to be here seven days a week, every day for four years. Vancouver's become a very progressive place. We were the first place to have a safer injection site, uh, so a supervised injection site. And it's extraordinary to see the difference because you can go into that clinic and watch people showing up and having their medical problem addressed. Or you can go down the street and you can watch people um, who aren't in that program desperately turning to whatever source they can, constant risk of overdose. And I don't mean to advocate, it's just, it's fascinating to me that these experiments are starting to happen now. And that's not the first place in the world. They've done it in Portugal and parts of Britain too. So I think we're going to be forced to to try a different approach. Did doing this show or has doing this show um, made you want to pursue drugs that, you know, beyond your uh, your average uh, alcohol and, and coffee? Uh, you mean me personally? Yeah, yeah. As the host, were you like, well, I want to do that now? Or you're like, ooh, I <laughs> never want to touch any of those. I, I'm a little bit curious. I'm, I'm curious about microdosing. Mm-hmm. I've used LSD before. I've never microdosed. So I'm curious about those effects. I think I'm okay mostly, <laughs> though. Um, I, I do get curious sometimes because I, I I hear about people, t- you know, talking about their LSD trips, and I I get a little bit nostalgic about it. But <laughs> the way I look at it is, most of the drugs that I enjoyed at a certain time in my life were drugs that amplified reality. Yeah. And now that I'm married and I have kids and a mortgage i've got plenty of reality like i don't need to if anything i need to dampen reality right. a little bit and, and there's the a craft, drug for that yeah the craft beer does it really well exactly actually. exactly i feel like my drug of choice is netflix you know um. the augment. 
You are too wild, Lauren. Jeff Turner is the host of On Drugs from the CBC. To find out more about the show, check out biglisten.org. Now, if you recall from the top of the show, our pal Jess Skolnick is a survivor of violent crime. And one of the things that's helped the writer cope over the years is antidepressants. But then Skolnick found true crime television. When I'm trying to de-stress at night, like I'll, you know, lie down and watch eight episodes of Forensic Files back to back, (laughs) which sounds uh, like it would be extra stressful, but actually like really helps me unwind. I know that's really weird. It was one of the strangest cases in Canadian history. A squashed piece of fruit and a tiny pinpoint reflection in a picture was the only evidence. For Skolnick, true crime shows, be they on TV or in podcast form, serve as a reminder that many people are impacted by violence. And just that fact can make survivors feel a little less isolated. First of all, there's that admission that these things do happen, um, which is just a relief. And to a degree, listening is a type of exposure therapy for Skolnick. That's where people are exposed to scenes or events in a controlled environment that recall their initial trauma in order to help them overcome it. It's a pretty common treatment of PTSD. And the good thing about any true crime stories is that you can always turn them off. I have control. I mean, that in and of itself is extremely powerful. Not only that, but for Skolnick, those types of shows also help foster some sort of compassion for those who commit violent crime. Even Skolnick's own assailants. If we can have a greater understanding of the cycles of violence, then we can potentially prevent it in some ways as well. Um, And there's hope in that. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll check in with Broadway star Jonathan Groff about his podcast musical, 36 Questions. When I saw on the subject, musical podcast... I just found that so interesting because I'd never heard of a musical podcast before. But first, we're going to check out audio stories from around the world with the producer behind Radio Atlas. I want it to be about a broadening of perspective. Audio is such a weird, it's so weird that we're sort of the only documentary art form that hasn't found a good way of dealing with translation. That's coming up in a bit, so stick around. This is NPR. Hi, this is Matt from Hudson, Ohio, and my favorite podcast is The Cross-Examined Life. So the host, Chris Tatum, interviews people and uh, does like a friendly discussion with them. And I've really learned a lot from listening uh, to his podcast on how to have a productive discussion with somebody. The existence of charter schools weakens local public schools and drains them of needed attention and resources. On average, children do no better in charter schools than in neighborhood schools, where they're guaranteed a spot. I really appreciate you taking the time to... A couple weeks ago, I was driving my daughter to college, and we were listening to that episode, and we pressed pause for uh, just to discuss it, and it turned out an hour later we were still discussing our views on charter schools. So it really is an interesting podcast that makes you think And uh, I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And our pal Matt from Hudson, Ohio, actually had a conversation with his teenage daughter about a podcast. Do podcasts get your surly teens talking to you? Well, let us know about it on the pod line. The number is 202-885-POD1. 
Now, if you speak English, and only English, and you want to read a book written in another language or watch a foreign film, there are likely translation options available to you. But what about audio? There are rich audio storytelling traditions in places like Scandinavia and South America and beyond. But if you don't speak the language, like Icelandic from that last clip, it's unlikely you'd listen. Until now. Radio Atlas is a podcast that translates foreign language audio stories into English text-only videos. So it's like a foreign film with no moving pictures. And because the translation is on a screen and we are on the radio, we've taken the liberty of doing some voiceovers here. London-based radio producer Eleanor McDowell is behind the project. Eleanor, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you for having me. So tell me, um, what is this project, Radio Atlas? So essentially, it's subtitled films for audio from around the world. And it's designed to try and open up a way to help you access things that are being made in languages that you don't speak. Because I find it slightly baffling that we exist within this art form where we don't seem to care that much about this huge amount of stuff that we're not hearing at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, were you were you thinking, oh, wow, there's so much out there that people are making that I personally cannot listen to because I don't speak Portuguese or Swedish or Italian. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, um, I mean, I come from a background, I'm a, a radio producer myself, so I make documentaries and I would sometimes go to these kind of European conferences and documentary festivals where it would be the sort of one opportunity in the year where you would get to sit, you would sit with this sort of huge printout wadge of paper on your knee and you'd have to read along to something whilst it's being played. So you're kind of like trying to follow what's being said and you're like, oh, damn, did I miss when the bicycle bell went and you're sort of getting completely lost and attributing the words of an elderly woman to a sort of tiny boy (laughs) and um, trying to follow what's being said. But in that space, you know, you would sometimes have these kind of incredible experiences listening to things that would be such a challenge to the way that I would approach making documentary to the way that I would use certain voices how I would use the environment how I would pace things what sort of stories I felt should be told in an audio space and I think there's a real danger I think in us telling stories from places around the world where it's always us going in as kind of audio tourists Um, rather than hearing something that comes kind of from a place. It's funny that you say that because I was listening to one of the episodes. I guess I was listening and watching because it is both a little film and, you know, just subtitled with no images. Um, But it's called Writer and it it is a portrait of this writer from Detroit made by this, uh, this Belgian radio producer. Anything that's outside of Detroit is a suburb. This is Writer. It's actually bigger than Detroit itself, itself, Uh, right? Detroit is huge. That's the problem. There's no way to properly control it on the funds that we have. Writer is is a writer, like his name suggests. 
So this is you reading. Yeah, this is one of my readings. Uh, my first poem. He writes fiction and non-fiction about Detroit. state of emergency. In Stadtware, the city in which he's lived all his life. I'm a lifetime veteran of Detroit City, remotely controlled by Illuminati. You can call them bankers or whatever you want. All I know is gangsters get their cash up front. So he stuff. could tell me something about the city, I think. Hey, I coffee. He made coffee for me. Met cake. With cake. No, that's okay. And, I for and he proposes that we should go for a walk at Lake St. Clair to talk about the city. I wonder if Ryder is his real name. Hemingway Suite. Ryder shows me photographs of the city. photographs of things in and around the city, and I've got a great uh, photo album called Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. That's, that's a lot of the inspiration for the poetry. I write the, the garden of good and evil. It seems like a place where good and evil are difficult to tell apart. And what's the garden of good and evil? It harkens to a time where Detroit... 20 years ago, it was dark in the garden of good and evil. Midtown, the very popular midtown and downtown, was actually a very corrupt and venal and seedy place called the Cass Corridor. And you can drive down it without seeing pimps, pushers, crack dealers. And you get this totally different perspective of, uh, I do, of my own country, of this, of this city that I know something about. I actually had this realization, revelation, sort of when I was listening, and I'm almost too embarrassed to admit it. But, <laughs> uh, but that, oh, right, foreign journalists and producers of all kinds come to the U.S., and do all kinds of stories. And I have no <laughs> idea what those stories are. And they go back to their home country and they air these stories or they print these <laughs> stories. And it, it <laughs> for whatever stupid American reason, it never occurred to me that that was happening. Yeah, I absolutely, I, I really love that piece. And it's interesting because it, so it does a similar thing to me. I think it's, it's a really important way to see yourself reflected, I think, to kind of remember the act that you're having when you're going into someone, uh, into a country where the kind of first language isn't necessarily English and asking someone to kind of tell you a story in that space and how you're framing it and what your impressions are and what your kind of baggage is that you're taking for that, your idea of a place. So I think the more that we can hear coming from different perspectives, the more aware we become of our own framing mm-hmm. stories when we're making them ourselves. For people who are not familiar with um, with audio art or journalism around the world, what, what in your estimation, um, is it like in other countries? Or, or what are people making that, that we're sort of missing? Oh, man, it's so varied. I mean, I, I would I would kind of hesitate to make any generalizations about things. There, you know, there are trends that you can hear in uh, work that's sort of dominating English language iTunes charts. Absolutely. You can hear loads of kind of true crime stuff and serialized stories told mm-hmm. week by week are absolutely popping up around the world. But, you know, equally, there's loads of different kind of trends and conventions that are really challenging. There's um, a producer uh, working for a French art radio station called Arte that I really uh, love his work at the moment, where um, he makes these pieces that are kind of investigative journalism, but sort of set 
incredibly artistically and actually quite kind of avant-garde. So there's a story, um, Who Killed Lolita? And it's a murder investigation, seemingly. On January 20th, 2009, Mrs. Dos Reyes's former partner alerted the landlord because he had heard that the rent had gone unpaid for a certain amount of time. So, it was his intervention that set the ball rolling, if you like. They opened up the apartment and made the macabre discovery. They found the mother lying between her two children, you see, on the bed. The three of them had been dead for some time. From a forensics point of view, they determined the time of death as being roughly three months. As for the apartment, what was most striking? We found an apartment that was relatively basic in terms of furnishings, but still an average well-kept apartment. What didn't fail to arouse the investigators and our curiosity, however, was the absence of food or even any vaguely everyday consumer article, apart from a bag of diapers. I have to say that it was pretty much empty, completely empty. It's, you know, set with this landscape that's entirely alive and sort of quite disturbing and uneasy and sort of shifting constantly under the feet. And it's sort of it's often, uh, yeah, it's not very kind of head-on or straight. And that as an approach to kind of telling quite a journalistic story, I find really exciting to Mm -hmm. hear. What do you hope that people uh, get out of this project when when they listen or when they watch? I want it to be about a broadening of perspective. Audio is such a weird, it's so weird that we're sort of the only documentary art form that hasn't found a good way of dealing with translation, Mm -hmm. dealing with other languages. We must, like, it's like we're kind of film and we're sort of saying, oh, people are making films in Italy and France, but they can't be worth kind of checking out. So we'll just ignore that that's happening. And I think think that's so sort of damaging for us as an art form if you're not, you know, engaging really globally with what is happening and kind of learning and challenging each other. Um, and, you know, it's difficult because it's it's quite one way as well. I think a lot of like English language audio is making it into certainly, you know, in Europe, a lot of kind of European iTunes charts, Serial and This American Life and stuff have been kind of right up the top and are influencing producers working out there. But things aren't coming back the other way necessarily. And I think that sort of one sided conversation is quite dangerous. Right. So, um, yeah, I think Radio Atlas, it's. It's sort of mainly about highlighting that issue, I hope. And, you know, bringing work that I do think genuinely is beautiful and challenging and interesting and helping that reach a bigger audience. But, um, yeah, mainly sort of asking the question about, you know, why don't why don't we care a bit more about what we're missing? Because it's, you know, we, we're poorer for it in kind of English language audio for not being able to hear these things and not being able to allow it to kind of inspire us and challenge us and, you know make us think more about the perspective that we're coming from. Eleanor McDowell is the creator of Radio Atlas. To find out more about the project, check out biglisten.org. 
Well, it's time for another super speedy break, but when we come back, we talk with Broadway babe Jonathan Groff about the challenges of learning the music for 36 Questions, a musical podcast starring Jonathan Groff. What's really amazing and incredible and annoying about these composers is that they've written these really intricate things and I would sort of, in my mind, as I'm learning it, be like, oh, why is it like this? But then when I would learn it, I would understand emotionally exactly why it was that way. That's coming up in a sec. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. Hey, pals. Let's be real. You have more choices now for your news and entertainment than ever. Like, there are thousands of podcasts out there. Yeah, I know that's a lot. But this year, you chose this one. And we're so grateful you did. Your listening choices are part of who you are. And you know who you are? You're a pretty cool cat. That's who. So yeah, we know you have tons of choices about what media to consume. And we're thrilled that NPR programs are a part of your life. But we need your support to keep making cool stuff. So visit donate.npr.org slash listen to donate to your station and then share why you did. Tweet or post on Facebook with the hashtag WhyPublicRadio. That's W-H-Y, Public Radio. And thanks for being so freaking great. Hi, my name is Lily Engel. I'm from Alexandria, Virginia, and I'd like to recommend the podcast Human Race. It is ostensibly a podcast about runners and running, but it really is a far more profound podcast. For example, there was a story about a judge who organizes a um, running group for homeless and addicted people in Los Angeles that made you have hope for humanity. At 6 a.m. one morning, a dozen or so runners congregated in the courtyard of the Midnight Mission. The people congregated there look like members of any other running group. They're stretching, chatting, except for the location. Here's Judge Mitchell. You head out the door um, at the midnight mission and step over the people who are laying down on the concrete uh, with all of their life's belongings, uh, you know, clustered around them. It's worth listening to. It's called Human Race. Bye. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And if there's a podcast that has tickled your fancy, like Human Race has for our pal Lily, let us know about it. Ring up the pod line at 202-885-POD1 and leave a message. We would love to hear from you. Yes, you. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Listen Up. That's where we check in with some pretty cool people to see what they're putting their ears on these days. And today, we're hanging out with actor Jonathan Groff. You might know Groff from the musical Spring Awakening or the Disney movie Frozen. Or perhaps you recognize him for his Tony-nominated turn as King George in Hamilton. Comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Da, 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 Recently, I googled how much it would cost to buy a ticket to see Hamilton on Broadway. And when I got the results, honestly, I just about fainted. Starting price for nosebleeds, 500 bucks. I mean, no bigs. You know, I got that right here in my Velcro wallet, guys. Okay? I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. You don't have to throw away your shot, though. There's another way to experience at least one of the show's big names. 
Groff stars in a new podcast musical, 36 Questions. Yes, there are musicals in podcast form, which means you can listen for free in the comfort of your own home. No need to fight your way through Times Square crowds. You're welcome. I'll use the 36, 36, 36, 36 questions as a lifeline. Jonathan Groff of the podcast musical, 36 Questions. Welcome to The Big Listen. Oh my God, thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk uh, about, obviously, the musical podcast, 36 Questions. But first, it is obviously based on, um, on, on this... I don't even know what you would call it, a little experiment, a psychological experiment, uh, a little project, you know, describe the sort of the the iconic 36 questions for me. The 36 questions to love is the most I think it still holds the record as the most read article uh, in The New York Times. (laughs) And it's this study that these uh, their psychologists, scientists did where they said if you could get two people together that have just met and if they ask each other an honest answer and answer honestly these 36 questions they will fall in love mm-hmm. right <laughs> so yeah it's pretty interesting right i mean many 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 people have done this and have ended up in relationships so it's not you know it's it's not junk science there's some there's something to it Definitely. Somehow I missed this article and I missed this study somehow until this project came along. Uh, And I was on a road trip with my friends in a car and we sort of like sort of like lightly went through the questions. We didn't drop all the way in with them. But it's it. they're really it's some of them are obvious. You're like, oh, who would you most want to go to dinner with? And then it gets it gets deeper and more complicated and more, I think, vulnerable as they go along. So it makes sense that you would start to empathize or fall in love with the person that you're talking to. I right. think. I like the, I like you did it in a car in a car full of your friends. Like at the end, I mean, you yeah. could have all been just like, you know, in a four person date by the end of it. <laughs> exactly. We have this like now we're in this very weird polyamorous <laughs> relationship since that car ride that is very be, strange. But that would be amazing. That's the power of the thirty six questions. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously the podcast that you were in this musical podcast is uh sort of pivots on on this on these questions um but what uh what was it about doing a musical podcast that um that appealed to you well when i saw it was an email that came through my agents and when i saw on the subject musical podcast I just found that so interesting because mm-hmm. I never heard of a musical podcast before. And then uh, I met with the producers and they were talking about how they wanted to break form with the podcast and try something new and different. That excited me. Mm-hmm. They also spoke to how expensive it is to see a musical yeah. and how, you know, you're paying on Broadway $150 a ticket, probably minimum now mm-hmm. to go see a Broadway show. And how wouldn't it be great if we could start a trend of people creating musicals that people could listen to for free yeah. uh, in their ears with no charge. So I thought that was exciting. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Chris and Ellen, who wrote the story and the script and the music and lyrics, uh, they sent me a couple of their songs and I just thought they were so interesting and beautiful and intriguing and so all of that combined made me want to jump in 
But I made a pact with my moms Under no circumstance should I hear out Natalie Unlike you, I keep my word And promises I make become my reality You like to live your life blurring the lines Bending the rules to make yourself look better But all that I wanted was something concrete And to know for a fact you are The songs sounded a little complicated. It took me forever okay. to learn <laughs> the music. Okay, so I wasn't, so I'm not it's, crazy in thinking that it actually no, sounded hard. No, you're not hard. crazy. You're <laughs> okay. not crazy. <laughs> and what's really amazing and incredible and annoying about these composers <laughs> is that they, they they've written these really intricate things. And I would sort of, in my mind, as I'm learning it, be like, oh, why is it like this? Right. And then... But then when I would learn it, I would understand emotionally exactly why it was that right. way. So what was annoying about it is you're like, this is so effing hard. And then you're like, but it's because they're so effing smart right. that they wrote it in this specific, unique way because of the emotional thing that's happening here. It all made sense, uh, which which uh, then you then for me, I just have to like buckle down and do my homework and just shut up and learn the music right um but yes it was definitely the hardest part of the process for me uh, especially because we only had like three or four days to learn it before we started recording it oh wow um and so i'm a i'm a remedial music learner to begin <laughs> with uh so it was that, that chris and ellen would tell you that you know i was like ah. yeah, I, was, I was i was having a hard time yes it was a challenge but ultimately truly a joy to to learn the music because it was so it's so good and it really it really does all mean something, and it really it, they really put all their heart and soul into it. Yeah. And so I really, I'm really happy for them. And it was another reason I wanted to do this podcast musical because I think of all of these amazing composers that are out there that don't have the money or and the funds to put together a, a even a workshop of yeah. a musical these days is incredibly expensive to get actors and whatever. And yes, a podcast is expensive, but the idea that 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 new composers can 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 flex their muscles and and uh, you know sing and use their voices and try new things and be daring and be creative uh, is exciting to me. So I wanted I want to support that kind of work uh, and that kind of experimentation. We'll do this one thing It is the first thing We're doing together Since I found out you were not who I thought you were We'll do this one thing It could be the last thing Hey, listen, before we let you go, I can't, I would be a very bad host if I didn't ask you if you're listening to some podcasts yourself. Oh my God, not at this in this particular moment. Well, I do actually every morning listen to Up First on NPR while I'm making eggs. Oh. President Trump attacks the press for pressing him on his response to Charlottesville. Why did it take a day? He must be a racist. It took a day. Why did That's one that I listen to every day. Okay. That's how I get my news. What else did I listen to? Listening to Serial, actually, which I was obviously late to the game on that, but I listened to it while I was driving around Pittsburgh, and then it really got me into 
um, Audible, and then I started doing a lot of like uh, books on tape. Oh. And I did that. I did like a wow. I really am going so gay on this, but so this I did, is a safe uh, space. <laughs> I did uh, the Bob Fosse biography <laughs> that Sam Watson wrote yep. on Audible, and I did uh, a couple of Tales of the City on Audible. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And I started S Town right when I left Pittsburgh. John built the maze as a series of splits. One path comes to an end, then it splits left and right. Each of those paths end, then they split left and right. Over and over again, you have to choose which way to go. John and I are walking through, trying to reach the middle. You know, I designed this thing myself, so it was designed by Mad Man. That's what people tell me. I do feel like I'm walking around in your brain or something. Just imagine when it gets over your head. He scouts his direction. It is. It's kind of funny to be lost in something you designed yourself, isn't it? Let's see. Oh, no! We're stuck. Hmm. Are you really lost or are you putting We're it on for me? actually lost in our own maze. Isn't that exciting? But I only heard the first two episodes, and then I haven't been in a car because I've just been riding my bike everywhere. Right. So I haven't... And it's very unsafe to listen to headphones when you're on your bike. I never do it. I'm glad. Uh, honestly, I never do it. It's Good. so dangerous. Good. You're correct. Um, I just have like the, you know, bossy, bossy, bossy in my head right now. I don't know why. I just like I want to like just, you know, soft shoe it out or just tap it out a yeah, little bit. You should. I'm not going should, to. It would be obviously. embarrassing. I'd trip over myself. I'm not that coordinated. No one can see you. We're on oh, mics. Some people can see me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Graff of uh, the new musical podcast, 36 Questions. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. We're asking 36, 36, 36. Jonathan Graff is one of the stars of the podcast musical, 36 Questions from 2UP Productions. To find out more about this show or any of the shows he recommended, check out biglisten.org. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I have something in my eye. But before we let you go, it's time for C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple Podcast charts. We're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289, and if your podcast has reached number 289, well then, pin a rose on your nose, because you are something special. This week's 289 is called The Cracked Podcast. On with the show. It is neither about crack cocaine, nor is it about the space in between your gluteus maximus muscles, your butt cheeks. End quote. Mic drop. This is a podcast from Cracked.com. So please sit back. Hosted by a gentleman named Alex Schmidt, a.k.a. Schmitty the Clam. I don't know how he got that nickname. Hey, idiot, it's fine. <laughs> he was talking to somebody who is apparently a Twitter alien named Johnny Sun. Wow, an alien. I don't know. He bills himself as a Twitter alien, and he just spells lots of stuff wrong on Twitter. Just kind of just like bland. I mean, he, there's a picture of him on the website. He doesn't look like an alien to me. He looks like a really nice guy, but 
apparently he's an alien. Which is something that matters to you if you are alive. They talked about like what video game would be your life. Like apparently some guys would be like Grand Theft Auto. Bang, bang, bang. LAPD, LAPD at my front door. That seems stressful to me if that was mirroring your real life. Just a couple hours in jail. They also had an episode that was sort of about like how to be a human. Unless you're a zombie, white walker, or a ghost with unfinished business, this episode is for you. And it was very serious. It actually was not funny at all. It was like very thoughtful and I took notes basically. I, I get that. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. If you, I guess, are a fan of cracked.com, the most visited humor site in the world or in America or who knows. I don't know how they determine these things. I'm just saying what was on the website. That makes total sense. Cracked, the podcast. Want to listen to the big listen on the go? Yes, you do. Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we'll appear in your feed every week just like magic. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. Should you want to send us a holiday e-card, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. We also accept paper mail. Hint, hint. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, and Camila Salazar. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was making my list and checking it twice. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in this show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. Special thanks to Timmy Olmsted and Al Reynolds for always giving us a boost. Extra thanks this week to Mark Gunnery for his voice. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from writer Jess Skolnick on the cathartic and curative effects of true crime podcasts on survivors of violent crime. Skolnick's New York Times op-ed about this struck a chord with lots of people. I've gotten so many emails and Twitter responses and Facebook messages from people who are like, oh, my God, I felt like such a freak. I felt wrong. I felt like I was really betraying myself as a survivor for liking these stories or for being interested in them, that if you were a good survivor, you would stay away from stories like that. Right. But there's something very healing in it. Skolnick said the people who reached out about their own trauma felt like they had found some community. There has been a lot of power in people talking to each other about this and being like, I felt totally alone. And now I realize that I'm not alone. Yeah. And that like some of my friends might be interested in this stuff, too. And like it's okay to reach out to them. And we are always happy for you to reach out to us. Thanks for hanging out. Till next time. Keep listening, America. (laughs) (laughs) Land that I love. This is amazing. Now I can say that we have had a duet together. I feel very patriotic. This is NPR. NPR.